0: Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith?
1: I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith, I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic, it brings me peace.
2: I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience.
1: I kinda just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know, you just gotta follow it.
3: You just gotta follow what you think is your faith.
0: If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions.
3: I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now.
0: Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Rosenthal. As you know, throughout this year, I've been interacting with a number of man-on-the-street interviews that I recorded at a variety of Christian gatherings here in the St. Louis area. And most of the questions I asked were related to the definition of the word faith. When I specifically asked about the meaning of this word, most of the people I talked with ended up describing it as a blind leap that can't really be explained. But if that's the case, I then asked why anyone should leap toward the God of the Bible, since there happen to be so many other faith options in the marketplace of ideas. Well, here are some of the answers I received to that follow-up question. How do you know you're in the right faith, the true faith? Because um, I'd say it's an a, you know, unction from the Spirit from within.
1: Now
2: I'm convicted that what I'm doing is correct.
0: So wh- how did you get there?
2: it was the personal experience with god that's how i know that it's true because i've been to many holy ghost services and i didn't make myself fall over like the holy spirit made me fall over i know that he is real because i've experienced him for myself but i have a good friend that is a devout hindu and we've had conversations like this too because he'll say well what makes your faith right versus mine is not right and with Things like that, I just try to talk about like what God's done for me, how I've personally experienced him without like saying that you're, the other person is necessarily
1: wrong. It's definitely a challenge to talk about.
0: Why do you think you have the right holy book and the right God?
1: Uh, Cause I tried Jesus. And he worked. so you tried you know which what works for you, and that worked for me, you know.
0: So I've talked to Muslims who say something similar. I know it's the true thing because it works for me. I read the Quran and it's changed my life. I can see the fruit in my family's life. so what do you what do you do with that?
1: Um, I don't shame nobody for believing anything different. It's just what works for me is what works for me, and that's what I rock with.
2: I think there is no absolute truth in in any religion, and I think it's a matter of uh, subjective experience. I would say my faith comes from experience.
1: It has to be personal. You have to have your own personal encounter and own personal revelation fully of who God is to you before you can understand anything. I
3: think the Bible proves itself because it's the infallible Word of God.
0: Also, I have a relationship with him where I speak in tongues, which that is the evidence of the infilling of the Holy Ghost. That's also proof. Some years ago, while I served as the producer of the White Horse Inn, I invited John Warwick Montgomery onto the program for a discussion of apologetics, since he has written such a great deal on that topic. And I'd like you to listen to the following clip from that conversation. (laughs)
1: My wife and I are uh, in our apartment in Strasbourg, minding our own business about 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and the doorbell rings. I open the door, and there are these two gentlemen in funereal black suits with short haircuts. And I say to them, You're either CIA who finally caught up with me, or you're Mormon missionaries. Which is it? And they admit that they are Mormon missionaries. And I say, Why should I become a Mormon? You know what they talk about? the burning in the bosom. All I could conclude from this is that Mormon bosoms burn at a higher centigrade (laughs) from non-Mormon bosoms. Their argument was totally experiential, personal, subjective. And the reason that they did this is because they had nothing else. Uh, Archaeologically, and in every other respect, the Book of Mormon has nothing going for it. If we reduce Christianity to the level of subjective experience, we reduce it to cultic status, and there's no way in the world to arbitrate among these various subjectivities. You can't get inside of another person, look down uh, his gullet, uh, and see whether the Holy Spirit is there.
0: While it's certainly true that believers can and do have authentic experiences with God, the question I'm seeking to address on this episode is whether the Bible ever makes the claim, similar to the Mormon concept of the burning in the bosom, that personal experience can be used to authenticate our faith. Back in episode four, as I was asking the question, is faith a feeling? I discussed the fact that I wasn't able to find the word feeling anywhere near the word faith in most English Bible translations. And in preparation for this episode on faith and experience, I decided to run a similar search, this time looking for any appearance of the word experience in close proximity to faith. But once again, I came up empty. So why is it then that so many contemporary Christians lean so heavily on their own personal experience when it comes to authenticating their faith? This is what we'll be exploring on this episode. But before we do that, I'd like you to listen to a few more of my street interviews, particularly in light of Dr. Montgomery's comments about the Mormon experience of the burning in the bosom. What if you're having a conversation with a Mormon? How do you convince them that Christianity okay, well, is true?
1: I have a couple of Mormon friends, and that's a hard one, <laughs> because they know the Bible better than me. They can rephrase yeah. it and do whatever. I, you know, I don't know, I, and I don't try. I think that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convince them. All I can do is tell them what my experiences are and the things I've seen and the things I believe.
0: So what do you think would be more effective as you're trying to convince your Muslim roommate? Probably my own experience. It's yeah. easier to explain how God has worked through my own life instead of, hey, this is what other people have said. This is what has been written down. I can tell you from my own experience how it's gone. That's how I've always introduced my friends who have not had a relationship with Christ and it's like well he's changed my life so he could change yours hmm. but isn't that the same thing that the mormon will say i i do not have an answer for that i mean for me it's you know it's changed my life so it's the best religion you can have as i look through the book of acts i don't see them saying become a christian because you'll have a changed life do you ever can you think of a text that backs that up no i can't about spreading the word like you said with mormonism that would be difficult, spreading our religion, Christianity, to another religion. But isn't that or how Jewish? Christianity arose in the first place? Didn't it sort of expand into mm-hmm. other religious territories? Paganism was everywhere, but it convinced people who weren't Christian. So, what were they doing then, and why can't we do it today? Hmm. I'm not sure. I feel like today uh, a lot of people are afraid to speak out because of cancel culture. Back on episode 12, I discussed the fact that outside the New Testament, we have evidence from a variety of sources that in the middle part of the first century, vast multitudes of Christians in the city of Rome were forced to deal with a much harsher form of cancel culture. These believers were not only prohibited from speaking, but they were also arrested, tortured, and ultimately martyred for their faith in Jesus. So what was it that caused these believers to be willing to face suffering and persecution of this kind? Was it their own personal experience? As we've already seen, when it comes to establishing or authenticating the faith, we don't actually find this kind of language in the pages of the New Testament. What we do find, however, are numerous appeals to that which was seen and heard by a multitude of credible eyewitnesses. The followers of Jesus didn't appeal to their own subjective experiences as a test for truth, but instead continually pointed to objective evidence and to external facts about the real world corroborated by a multitude of sources. To give just one example, think of the opening of the Gospel of Luke. Theophilus was told that he could have certainty about Jesus, not because Luke had particular experiences he couldn't explain, but because he interviewed those who had personally witnessed all that Jesus did, which included his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. But if this is the kind of thing we find throughout the Bible— then why do so many Christians in our day end up following an apologetic approach that is similar to the Mormon doctrine of the burning in the bosom? Along those lines, I'd like you to listen to this final clip.
3: When you believe something, you know it. You don't have to see it. You don't have to have physical evidence. You just know it. That's what believing in faith is to me.
0: Do you think it's like closer what the Mormons say, that it's a burning in the bosom?
3: Uh, I would say it's something similar to that. Like for me, like... I get this fire inside of me that gets me, you know, almost amped up, energetic, you know, like where I'd be willing to do anything within my life for Christ, you know? Then what
0: happens, though, when that feeling isn't there? Would that cause you to doubt?
3: Um, You know, once that kind of like that doubt comes there or if there's any back push from it, you keep going, you fight because you truly do believe it. If you if you really believe it, you're going to fight for it and try to regain that same fire that you once had for it. Once you rekindle that fire, get that spark going, start working towards it, it can help. There's been many times in my life, even as a Christian, many of us Christians, you know, feel this, like, that doubt, yeah. right? That doubt, like, maybe, maybe you have that thought in the back of your head. You know, but then, like, a lot of times that I've had that, I ask God, okay, show me, show me something, and every time, every time, I promise you, he's delivered. Boom, boom, boom. Addiction gone. Depression gone. Which helped me believe even more.
0: I guess my question, though, would be like, you can have amazing experiences with a counterfeit bill. Yeah. And counterfeit religions do the same thing. Mormons will tell me the same thing. They know it's true because they've experienced it. They feel it's changed their lives. Yeah. Right. So, but they're polytheists. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a different religion, different holy book. Right. So, Is that a good test for truth? Try it, you'll like it. Because every religion has experiences and
3: changed lives. Um, If you want to see the truth of it, if you truly want to see, is God real? All you have to do is ask. For example, with him, right? We've been friends since the fifth grade, but he didn't grow up in the church. I did. I was like, man, if you ever just have doubt or you want to see for yourself, just ask God literally four days later after he asked God to show him a sign, he showed him. And we were both there, like it's a feeling I could not describe and one that I could not fathom. Something I've never, words couldn't describe, you know.
0: Two things about this conversation stand out to me. First, though this young man described his faith as a kind of internal fire that gets him amped up, he also admitted that all Christians at times struggle with doubt. And the way he dealt with his doubt was by attempting to rekindle his internal fire and by focusing on his changed life, one without addictions or depression. Of course, the problem with this is that converts to Mormonism and many other faiths have also experienced relief from things like depression and drug addiction. Furthermore, since many Christians continue to struggle with these things, couldn't periods of relapse into depression or drug use be seen as an argument against the existence of the God of the Bible? When I mentioned the fact that Mormons also have changed lives, this fellow believer went on to argue that all one needs to do to confirm the truth of the Bible was to ask God for a sign, and that when he and his friend did this recently, they both experienced something they couldn't describe. But how is this different from the Mormon experience of the burning in the bosom? How is this different from the Pentecostal experience of speaking in tongues, which many see as proof of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Why do contemporary Christians put so much emphasis on their own subjective experiences? Joining me for this episode to help answer these questions is Dr. J.R. Miller, who is the co-founder of the Center for Cultural Apologetics and the Professor of Christian Worldview at Grand Canyon University. Dr. Miller recently wrote a book titled One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, which attempts to trace the history of this turn toward the subjective that has taken root in so many Christian circles over the past few centuries. At the beginning of our conversation, I asked Dr. Miller to comment on many of the street interviews I recorded.
2: I've heard a lot of those similar kind of things from a lot of different people. I hear some of those things from my own students. At Grand Canyon University, you know, I'll have a couple hundred students every fall and we ask them, what is your faith? Where does it stand? And, you know, how do you know what you believe? And, you know, we get the spectrum of agnostic, atheist, Christian, but even amongst the Christians, you see these kind of responses that, uh, you know, have part of the truth, I think, right, but not the whole. And experience certainly should be a part of our relationship with God. But when experience sort of becomes experientialism, when we put ourselves at the center of all truth, like that one gentleman commented, he said, you know, all, everything is subjective. There is no truth. And, you know, of course, that the apologist in me said, well, except there is, I guess, one truth that there is no truth kind of thing. It's like, okay, that contradicts right. itself. But that gets into the experientialism, right? Where it's just all about the self and my experience is all I need to validate truth. And I think that's where it goes away from a biblical concept of experience versus experience as the center of all truth.
0: You actually ended up writing an entire book that sort of traces the history of how we got here. So why don't you tell our listeners about the subject of your new book and some of the issues that you're seeking to address in this work?
2: Yeah, so I started the book really years ago when I was confronted with the questions related to the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians, uh, specifically baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is it an experience that comes at the moment of salvation or is it this post-conversion encounter as I started to explore that, looking at the history of it, where it started, and really looking at what are some of the philosophies that shaped the world, that this theology of uh, Holy Spirit baptism as a second post-conversion experience alone, evidenced by some miracle sign, like speaking in tongues, what's the sort of world view philosophically that undergirded that and shaped that theology, which is really new? But just trying to explore that background got me into this whole thing. And then part of that, I looked at the consequences. What was the fruit of these particular movements uh, that taught some sort of post-conversion spirit baptism? Because the claims were that this gives you a, a special love for God. It produces unity. And so these are some of these claims. And so I'm thinking, well, okay, let's look at the fruit of these movements. And what was surprising to me and I, mean, I know there's a lot of denominations, but what was shocking was literally the thousands of denominations that were spawned in the early 1900s, because they'd all come, hey, we want this experience, this encounter with the spirit. And then one person would get this one, and one person would get this one, and then they'd start infighting, and they'd disagree about all kinds of issues, and then they'd splinter off, and then this person would start their own denomination, their own church, and you know, looking through like these histories of denominations, I started to see more and more and more that all believed in this second post-conversion experience of the spirit, all believed it led to unity and love and kindness. But I wasn't seeing any of that in the actual history of these movements. And so it sort of gave me pause, like, wait a second, the evidence isn't matching the claims.
0: You've discussed already the uh, that post conversion experience, sometimes referred to as the second blessing. Part of your book is trying to resolve like, is there any justification for this in the New Testament?
2: Yeah. So this is where I like to let folks know reading the book that what I'm really looking at is what does this theology of spirit baptism mean? And I'm not necessarily addressing their particular experience. That's something that's a separate conversation. My concern primarily is, was, does the language we're using reflect what is true in the scripture? So ultimately, my point in, in exploring this side of it was, the scripture should shape our understanding of experience. Our experience shouldn't shape the meaning of scripture. So let's take whatever experiences people say they have with the, with the Holy Spirit, but now let's say, okay, let's test that uh, against scripture, and let's also let scripture shape how we describe that to other people
0: you say in your introduction that at its heart this debate is centered on an interpretation of acts chapter 2 one of the things that i notice as i look at acts 2 is that there are a lot of different phenomenon present there and so those who attempt to go back and to recover you know an acts 2 kind of church experience are selective often in the things yeah. they highlight uh so there is this Speaking in tongues, and we can get into what that means. You know, one of the respondents mentioned that as evidence for how mm. she knows her religion is true because she has this experience that matches what she sees in the book of Acts. But you also have tongues of fire and this mm. loud noise of rushing wind. There are a number of different things that happen in the book of Acts that don't seem to be manifesting today yeah, and so it it just seems to be a selective application if we're going to redo the book of Acts why don't we see everything that was done the kinds yeah. of healing that you see throughout the book of Acts for another yeah. example
2: well, they all sold all their possessions and shared everything in common too. In Acts chapter two, and I don't see a big push for that, especially right. amongst certain leaders uh, who are, uh, you know, not quick to depart with their money. So uh, that's sort of another wonderful aside. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a whole slew of experiences there, and even within Acts chapter two that we're not looking to repeat. It's just picking this one, this idea of tongues. The history of how that was interpreted is really fascinating. So the early proponents really believed that it was what they read in Acts 2 was it was a language that was a foreign language unknown to those speaking it. Because what's happening, obviously, here is the Jewish folks from all different nations have returned for this Feast of Pentecost. So they're hearing these uneducated fishermen and other people speaking these other languages. And so they're saying, wow, this is truly fulfillment of what God prophesied. This return of the spirit. So this whole thing about what tongues was and fulfilling that prophecy, but it was other languages. So in 1901, when Charles Parham, who was the first guy to really have the modern Pentecostal sense of what we understand now as a second blessing evidenced by the speaking of tongues, his group in uh, Topeka, Kansas and his revivalist group, they were meeting a gal named Agnes Osman was the first to speak in tongues and they were convinced, ah, this now we've recaptured what was lost for all these years in the church. Well, the problem was she was supposed to speak Chinese. She even has a writing sample. And I give that in the book, she did not speak Chinese and she did, certainly didn't write in Chinese. It's just scribbles on a paper, but they were not very well educated. They just assumed, oh, this looks like Chinese lettering and it really it was just really a bad assessment. But what you had was in these early years, then lots of people went as missionaries to other countries. So they said, somebody said, oh, you're speaking, you know, Swahili, you're speaking, you know, Farsi, you're speaking whatever. And then they would travel to these countries to be evangelized to show the gospel. And they get there and they realized they were speaking gibberish. So then the theology of tongues went from xenoglossia, tongues is another language, to just the sort of glossolalia that was the language of just a spiritual language or an angelic language or something along those lines. Well, the prayer language concept, actually, I don't think that doesn't come till later until actually Oral Roberts University in the 1960s. Interesting. Um, I can't find anybody prior to Oral Roberts writing about tongues as specifically a prayer language. That's just personal between you and the Lord, but I can't really find anybody prior to that, even in Parham and others who wrote that it was a personal prayer language. It was always as an outward sign of the gift of the Holy spirit, but not a personal prayer language yeah. that was ongoing and used that way. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's just a good example though where again experience became the center of, of interpretation and based on experience the interpretation of the bible kept changing experience didn't work out so they went back and revised the interpretation of the text experience didn't work out revised the interpretation of the text
0: what would you say in your view is the primary focus of acts 2
2: the focus of the entire passage is that that Yahweh has come and fulfilled his promise to give a Messiah, a savior to his people. And this is the fulfillment of what he had promised to Abraham, that all nations would be blessed. And I think that's the importance of the, the tongues as other languages there, is that God is showing that now, as you just said, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, outermost parts of the world, people of other languages, of other groups are now given the opportunity to be brought into the promise of the father that began with Abraham and as we see throughout because this has been God's plan all along through his chosen people Israel all nations would be blessed and so we see that international flavor if you will right they are no longer to keep it just amongst the men of Israel or the the people who are the biological seed of Abraham right this, this, this message is messages for all people so it's reinforcing as you said fulfillment of prophecy the evidences they're here that God has been faithful. Now go and do what you are called to do. And that's the whole point of Acts.
0: Yeah. One of the things yeah. that interests me is how the tongues issue in particular became front and center. I mean, yeah. if you look at what is stated there in Acts chapter two, it simply says they spoke in other tongues, languages other than Hebrew, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And that word utterance, when I looked it up, it's fascinating. That word in Greek is the same word that's used for prophetic utterance, bold prophetic speech, Mm -hmm. inspired speech, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what Joel prophesied, that your sons and daughters shall prophesy. It's been hundreds of years since prophets were around. And you know what? What Peter said in that scene with all the other apostles, it ended up being recorded as scripture. And what do we find them doing as they're filled with the spirit? They are reading the texts of Israel in a Christ-centered way.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they are becoming uh, as the Old Testament prophets. They are the mouthpiece of Yahweh. They are speaking the message that God has given them to speak. So when we talk about what happens in Joel... Uh, what does it mean by they prophesied? Well, we know there's two kinds in the Old Testament. There's foretelling and forthtelling. The foretelling prophecy is really this idea of uh, looking into the future and saying this new thing. It's new information, so to speak, right? And then there's forthtelling, which is just giving the forthright answer. It's just telling it like it is. So you get prophecies like this. God has warned you, O oh Israel, if you defy this covenant, if you, you know, whore after other gods, if you do this, that his blessing will cease. You know, he will cease to be in the land. You will do this stuff. And guess what? That time is now. So a lot of what prophets did was they simply were expositors of the existing revelation that God had given through his other prophets who were foretelling future things. So I think there's two kinds of prophecy at play. So if we take those definitions, which I do, I think the, the, the case that those is made, then we say, what's happening in Acts? Well, all we have happening in Acts is Peter is doing that latter kind. He's just simply forth telling. I'm just giving you the, the truth of what God has already given us. And I'm telling you that this has been fulfilled. So he's doing what the majority of even Old Testament prophets did, was he's expanding on or giving authoritative application to existing revelation.
0: It's interesting too, isn't it? When you look at the way the New Testament sort of grows and expands, it's built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. You see some examples of prophets Mm -hmm. speaking things in the book of Acts. But as Paul is setting up churches, He only talks about the qualifications for an elder and a deacon, not for Mm -hmm. a prophet or who qualifies as an apostle. Those are foundational offices, but they're not continual offices. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think what we have to realize, yeah, what, what does the Bible talk about versus what does it teach? What is describing history? What's prescribing the way we should practice, right? And so I think, yeah, we see pretty clearly that the only two offices prescribed for the church are elder and deacon. We don't have the prophetic office, so to speak. Uh, We don't have a priestly office, technically, I mean, because we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So that office that was there historically in the Old Testament seasons. What we have are elders and we have deacons. And so that's what, I again, I see happening in the flow of that if the spirit chooses to manifest himself with the temporary manifestation of one of those signed gifts for some purpose, I have no problem, but that doesn't establish the office of apostle or the office of prophet, nor does it undermine the authority of the elder to lead and guide the church, who is to be faithful to the apostolic teaching. And that's why I to point back to that, because if you're claiming new revelation, new authority, which supersedes that of the elder, then that is wrong because the elder is has the ultimate authority grounded in the message that is given to by the apostles once and for all
0: yeah so now, now let's get to the issue of that two stage conversion some christians have ended up seeing salvation as a first step and then the mm-hmm. second blessing the second stage brings them to a, this level of a super saint or you know some other kind yeah, of extra yeah. blessing when does this interpretation first enter the scene? Who are the, some of the first advocates?
2: Yeah, it grew up in a lot of different folks, uh, and uh, different people added different pieces to it before we get this really 1901, Charles Parham solidified what we would understand as a clear theology of spirit baptism as a post-conversion you know, experience of, or blessing, right? So uh, one of those influencers would be a guy named Edward Irving out of Scotland, who talked about the restoration of the early church and the fivefold offices. But What time period was he from? He's in the 1700s, but he had problems theologically. I mean, he rejected a lot of the core doctrines of Christ. He was rejected as a heretic, which you know, in and of itself doesn't mean a lot because people just often say, you're a heretic, and I hate you, and it doesn't really mean anything. But in his case, when you look at his doctrine, it was really, really bad. Then you get into the 1800s, you get uh, folks like Joseph Smith, I actually include a section on him in the book only because when I studied at Oral Roberts University, I had a a professor who talked fondly of Joseph Smith as a precursor to Pentecostalism. So the theology and experience of Joseph Smith were used as a validation of some of that early Pentecostal theology, which I was like, wait, what? And so I started to really dig into this. But Joseph Smith, you know, when they talk about the Mormon burning of the bosom, this is elevating that experience of the spirit. But they also had experiences with speaking in tongues. And he argued that that was a evidence that his Joseph Smith gospel, so to speak, was truth because they had this evidence of speaking in tongues, just like they did in Acts.
1: Wow. Uh,
2: and then, so yeah, he became one of those influencers that shaped that. I think you go to a lot of philosophers that, you know, like Schleiermacher and folks like that who bring in experience as the core of our faith. Kierkegaard. Yeah, Kierkegaard, yeah, who brings in this idea of centering humanity at the core of all of these things, and then experience at the center of faith, and experience is the only true thing that brings validity to our faith. You see this theology sort of meshed together with culture itself, you know, American individualism, uh, I think, is is a big, you know, kind of reflection of that sort of thing. So if there's American individualism, there's spiritual individualism. I am the master of my own domain and my own faith. Uh, And so you see all these things come together until they finally have this more crystallized doctrine of uh, a second blessing distinct from salvation, evidenced by the personal speaking of tongues, which is all I need because it proves it to me, and that's all the evidence I need. Which ultimately ends up circumventing the Bible as authority. It's it's funny because the the appeal is Scripture tells us my experience is true, but ultimately the experience is what proves that the Scripture is true. Experience ends up being the ultimate truth teller.
0: So, as you heard in many of the street interviews that I played at the beginning many of the Christians I talked with attempted to validate Christianity by means of their own subjective experiences. Can you think of any New Testament text where someone gives that kind of an answer or rationale?
2: Yeah, great question. Uh, I wrestle with this. I think I was just grading papers this morning in one of our early assignments on the Christian worldview. We asked students to say, you know, what's your foundation for morality, what's your, you know, how do you know if you're a Christian, if it's true or not? And a lot of students who say they are Christian, well, I know it, I know my moral system, it's all based on how I feel or how I think, or it's just the way I was raised, and it's my family, and it's all very, again, man-centered, experience-centered. Um, which at one side makes me happy that I get to speak to these students. At the other side, it makes me sad that they've been brought up in a Christian environment where they think that's the depth of their faith is their experience, which makes them, us as Christians, no different than any other, you know, religion, because we all have experiences, exactly. we have feelings, all things are equally true Then, Well, that's a problem.
0: Yeah, especially when it's, you compare it to the Mormon claim of the burning in the bosom. This is yeah. one thing that I'll often bring yeah. up. How do you well, negotiate those waters if it's the same argument?
2: Yeah. It sounds like the same claim because ultimately, historically, it is the same claim. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually kind of what I put in the book. Joseph Smith was the precursor to that movement that centralized experience of the spirit as self-validating. Right, And so, yeah, it does sound the same because it really is that same vein of thinking, which is outside of what you point out is what the scripture tells us facts, evidences, things like fulfilled prophecy, or if we can look at the eyewitness testimonies, you know, the resurrection itself as the center of whether that is true or not. All of those things are the evidences that tell us the truth of Christianity. Woven together is always experience, because there is no such thing as a human devoid of experience. There's nothing that doesn't involve experience, but the idea that somehow my experience determines truth ends up being a nightmare. Yeah. So it's not meant as a self-authenticating thing. It's right. meant as a experience that is authenticated by its alignment with the truth of scripture, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, we can have experiences of the truth, but you can also have experiences with counterfeits and with Deception. So you can't just sort of go with the feeling of your experience as justifying something. You have to first have a foundation. Give our listeners a little understanding of the uh, Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, 1906? Yeah.
2: 1906. And was Charles Parham involved in that? Well, he wanted to be involved, uh, but that's more because he uh, had a problem giving up power. But that's a whole that's other story. So, yeah, so 1901 was with Charles Parham and the Topeka Revival. And a guy named uh, William Seymour came to Parham and said, hey, I want this spirit. I want this encounter that you've had. Well, the problem was that Parham had some KKK connections. He was not a nice dude. So mm. uh, he did allow Seymour to listen outside of the building uh, so he could listen through a window to his you know, speeches and sermons and stuff like this. So Seymour picks up this second blessing theology and he travels out eventually to California where he's uh, this Azusa street revival, where he's going to do these, uh, his own church, his own revivals. And so again, part of the claim, and this is part of the interesting historical side of this uh, was that when the spirit comes, we have this great sense of unity and, we all this happens and all this kumbaya. Well, the sad part was that uh, of the records that we actually have from this, uh, it wasn't long before they were there, lots of people started showing up, but then ethnic divisions and racial divisions really took hold again because uh, there were people who were uh, of Mexican background who came a part of that uh, and they wanted leadership and others said, no, a lot of the the black leaders didn't want them in part. So then the Mexican folks split off and did their own churches and their own true gospel mission. Mm -hmm. And everybody was the true gospel. Everybody was the Holy Spirit revival gospel, speaking in tongues, truth-telling mission, church denomination. It's just ironic that the same racial division that we have from Parham that was not solved by the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is the only reason why that's relevant to say that uh, early on with, with Param is that the fact that he still held on to his deeply sort of cultural racist views, that was not solved by the second experience, which was supposed to give us truth and love and all the things that are claimed by that. Uh, And certainly through the history even of Seymour, as a guy who experienced that, he didn't act much differently than anybody else in the culture of the day having encountered that. So for me, this ended up being a real problem. And I'll add this point, too. Does that mean that everybody who came out of that was not Christian or is damned to hell and never believed? No. The blood of Jesus Christ covers over all my sins and i including the sin of bad theology yep. right if jesus is able to cover over my sin of lust and greed and envy and strife his blood his shed blood can cover over my really terrible thinking process i mean even the apostles had to, peter it took him 10 years before he was willing to accept gentiles as truly a part of the the church that's why we have the, the experience in cornelius I mean, he, he didn't believe – a decade after Pentecost, Peter still didn't believe the Gentiles can really, really receive salvation in Jesus.
0: So if we can be saved from bad theology, does that mean Mormons can be saved too and the Galatian Judaizers? How far do we go with that?
2: So here's the distinction I, I usually make in that because I, I do have to be careful with that. So. There is a core to the gospel of who Jesus is. Salvation comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So there are fundamentals. If we look at like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles Creed, Jesus Christ, who is who is God, made flesh, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, raised, buried, and on the third day rose, sent to heaven, come again to judge, all those sort of core essentials. So I'm not saying there isn't a substance to the core of salvation. What I am saying is that in the midst of that, I can have some bad thinking, right? I cannot fully understand who the spirit is. I cannot comprehend the depths of the Trinity. I can even have a bad theology of tongues and all of those things. And I can still be saved because fundamentally I believe in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. So you get to Mormons or those sorts of things. Individually, I'd say I would not look at somebody who says, I'm a part of the Mormon church and say, oh, you're immediately, I can assume that you are unsaved. I'd have to have a conversation. What I can say is the Mormon doctrines are insufficient for salvation. The Mormon teaching is not biblical teaching. And so I would say that those who teach those doctrines would not be saved because they are have a different level of accountability. They have a different knowledge of what they say. But I know a lot of people that have come to faith through, you know, prosperity gospel, very aberrant things. And a decade later, they realize, yeah, that was all false. But I still think I was saved. I just yeah. was really deluded right. in the midst of that. Yep. So hopefully that does make sense and people won't stone me for hairs. <laughs>
0: Folks, you've been hearing from Dr. J.R. Miller, who is the co-founder of the Center for Cultural Apologetics and author of One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. By the way, I've written a series of articles titled Acts 2 and the Tongues Controversy that you can find linked in the show notes if you're interested in my own perspective on this issue. I've also written an additional piece that provides an alternative interpretation of tongues wherever this subject appears throughout the rest of the New Testament. I'll be making this document available to all my supporters and paid subscribers later this week, and if you'd like to get a copy of this PDF document, then simply make a gift of any size to help support the work of this podcast or become a paid subscriber through Substack. You can find both options in the show notes of this episode at HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com, and I look forward to being with you again next time as I air part two of this discussion of faith and experience.